I'ma read that bitch. I'ma school that bitch. I'ma take that bitch to college. I'ma give that bitch some knowledge. I'ma read that bitch. I'ma school that bitch. I'ma take that bitch to college. I'ma give that bitch some knowledge. I'ma read, I'ma read, I'ma read. I'ma read, I'ma read, I'ma read. I'ma read that bitch. I'ma read that bitch. I'ma read that bitch. I'ma take that bitch to college. I'ma give that bitch some knowledge. I'ma read that bitch. I'ma read that bitch. I'ma read, I'ma read, I'ma read. I'ma read, I'ma read, I'ma read. I'ma read that bitch. I'ma read that bitch. I'ma read that bitch. I'ma read, I'ma read, I'ma read. 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 I don't like that bitch. Proofread that bitch. Proofread that bitch. Hello, welcome dear reader to Book Jockey, where an aging lit major reads and analyzes lit in the public domain for no one's amusement. Currently, we're reading Powers of Darkness by Vladimir Osmundson, which is an Icelandic translation of Bram Stoker's Dracula. It's been a couple months since my last episode, probably about two and a half months to be fair. Um... Primarily, I could give lots of excuses. You know, work has been stressful. Thanksgiving came around, the holidays, that's always stressful. Um, But the primary reason is that I'm a stupid asshole loser who can't commit to anything in life. And then there's one fucking thing I want to do that shouldn't be considered a chore. It's a choice that I made. And yet I still can't follow the fuck through because I'm a stupid asshole loser who can't do shit. But here we are. I'm trying to get back on the fucking horse and we'll try again. And so instead of a lot of chit chat, we'll just dive right back where we were. Um, Surprisingly, you know, even though we've only had four episodes, We're on page 105 of Powers of Darkness. That doesn't mean much because there's so many pages of introduction and appendices and references and intro notes and blah, blah, blah. Um, And also the entire book has ginormous margins because of all the notes. Um, But... The book is only 289 pages, so we're at 105. So we've only got a lot left. I mean, not it's not that bad. Um, so I'll dive in. But first, I will take a moment to say that, who knows? I know that I'm talking to myself here, but maybe, maybe I'll get a, you know, reader slash listener to because of the fact that BBC's Dracula, um, produced, written by Stephen Moffat of Sherlock fame, uh, is now available on Netflix. And so maybe there's some people typing Dracula into the search bar of their, of their podcast app, um, and this comes up. I'm happy to have you. You probably haven't made it to episode five because it's a steaming pile of shit. But um, 
in case you have, welcome. I'm also watching BBC's Dracula. Uh, I'd be curious to know what people think if anyone's listening to this. Um, I am only had the, seen the first episode so far. It's obviously a loose adaptation of Bram Stoker's work. Um, I find Agatha Van Helsing to be charming. Um, you know something is going to be endearing within if in the first five minutes of the show the character has a line saying did you have intercourse with count dracula you just know that you're in you know you've been i'm sold say no more um i i love her character i love how badass she is i love that there is a a badass female protagonist um, there are some things that I'm not quite sure about. It's hard for me to get into the low-budget uh, CGI. It's it's also interesting to have fallen in love with Dracula stories um, as an emotional child. As I mentioned in previous podcast episodes, I first read Bram Stoker's in fifth grade. Um, and then as an emotional teenager, seeing the Coppola film, um, which was very much like a love story, much more than Bram Stoker's book, um, to fall in love with the Dracula lore that was very gothic and dark and romantic and uh, horrific um, to see a depiction of it and that's so tongue-in-cheek like Stephen Moffat's writing is um, with like zingy one-liners is uh, slightly off-putting even though I live for comedy and I'm obsessed with comedy um, it's quite it's quite strange uh, it, it definitely takes you out of the moment a bit but it also will be one of the primary reasons why I stick with it is uh, to have a a Dracula that has a sense of humor and is just sick of everyone's shit would make sense, quite frankly. I mean, you've lived four centuries. After a while, you stop taking yourself so seriously. You want to have fun with shit things a little bit. You'd be bored. You know? I mean, you'd probably be depressed. You'd probably be lonely, but you'd also like be like, I gotta entertain myself. And you'd have that like detachment from taking yourself so seriously because you've had that those centuries of to gain wisdom where everything is kind of philosophically a joke. You know? World is a joke. It is. It's stupid. Um it's a good reminder. So anyhow. Let's go ahead and uh, get into this other adaptation of Dracula. So, um, I believe we are still on Jonathan Harker's journal. May 8th, midnight, coming to an end. Much has happened since my last entry, some of which is rather suspicious. A large part of the day had already passed before I awoke. When I walked into the dining room, food was on the table but all the doors were locked as usual. There were also some foreign newspapers lying there and a letter from my Wilma. 
which had come by mail. That was by far the most spice, but the best spice on the table. Okay, so the letter was the best spice on the table. I guess that's good writing. I don't know. I was ravenous, and I sat on the dining table for a long time. I, I don't know what's wrong with me. I need to learn how to read. I was ravenous, and I sat at the dining table for a long time, the more so as I couldn't help but look through the newspapers. Later, I went to the library, but as usual, the Count was nowhere to be found. Every day he is out and about, which does not surprise me as he has a big estate to take care of and also happens to be an avid hunter. And I sat reading the newspapers until sunset, and then I hurried to my bedroom to shut the window. There I realized that I had forgotten to shave, and as I had nothing better to do while I waited for the count, I hung my shaving mirror in the window, took off my jacket and vest, and then picked up the razor blade and put it to my skin. I looked out the window, admiring the landscape, and thought about the letter from Wilma. I didn't notice that anyone had come into the room until I heard the count say, Good evening, my dear young friend. He's always so cordial. Um, there's a note here that in Bram Stoker's Dracula, Jonathan Harker explains, I started, for it amazed me that I had not seen him since the reflection of the glass covered the whole room behind me. Yeah, I assumed that that was going to be on the next page. I'm surprised that they took that important factoid out of this adaptation. The fact that Dracula doesn't have a... Um, Reflections kind of a big part of the lore, so why would you omit that part? Okay. Uh, I was startled that I gave myself a nasty cut with my razor, but I ignored the blood running down my throat and turned to answer the Count's greeting. Never have I seen anyone's appearance change so drastically. Suddenly the Count began, became as pale as a corpse, his eyes turning red, bulged out of his head, and with his hair standing up like that of an angry dog, he looked like a raging beast. Before I knew it was happening, he seized me by the throat, tearing my shirt, and would probably have bitten my windpipe had my rosary not gotten in the way. He must have been momentarily possessed. Soon his outburst subsided, and he asked would I forgive him for being so frenzied. But I cannot bear to see human blood, he explained. Those cuts can be dangerous, he added, more dangerous than you can imagine, and it is all because of the instrument of vanity, this mirror, away with it. He flung the mirror towards the furnace, shattering it into countless pieces. Then he threw the shards into the coal basket and left for the dining room, saying, I will wait for you there, my dear Harker. I was uneasy about that count. Yeah, no shit. He just fucking lunged at you and tore your shirt, as he was clearly not of entirely sound mind. And even though he was old and white-haired, I surmised that I would be no match for him, neither in strength nor agility, as he boasted of being a descendant of Attila, the, the king of the Huns. It seems that in this castle anything can be expected. I have spotted no other servants here, but the deaf and dumb old woman and the driver, whom I haven't seen since I arrived." This manor so large, however, that it could hide dozens of people, and for hours they'd have no knowledge of one another, in it as though the silence of death rules over this castle, and as I have no contact with anyone but the Count, 
he would quite easily be able to lock me up entirely, if it so suited him. I wouldn't even be able to get away through the window, as the castle is built on a rocky mountaintop with steep cliffs on three of its sides. Looking down, all I can see is a deep ravine where tall trees grow, so unless I could fly like a bird, I cannot escape. In broad daylight, my self-control and lack of exaggerated imagination generally keep me from fearing what darkness may bring. But if the Count has inherited some nasty tribal character from the Huns, such as an urge to kill or some other sinister trait, it is best to be cautious. I found the Count in the library skimming through magazines and newspapers. He was composed and courteous as if nothing had happened in my bedroom. He greeted me kindly and asked how I was, as if he hadn't spoken to me earlier that day. I realized he must not have been fully aware of what had occurred. He then stood up, saying, It is not late yet, and I wondered if you would like to see the family portraits upstairs. I said that I would love to. It may not be ideal to look at the portraits by candlelight, but as I have so much to do during the day, I am unable to show them to you in a more appropriate time. Later, you can view them again in daylight, and if you don't mind waiting for a moment, I will go take care of the light so that it will be bright enough. He walked away, and I heard his footsteps as he went down the corridor and up the stairs. It seemed to be a long way to the portrait gallery. Suddenly, I grew frightened, so I ran to my room and grabbed my revolver, which had remained in my travel bag, untouched since I had embarked on my journey. When I returned to the library, I was struck with a yet another shock that left me lightheaded. It was getting dark, and before leaving the library, the Count had lit all the silver candlesticks. There, in the chair by the fireplace, sat the Count's niece, her ivory arms adjoining the armrest. She had opened up her shawl, revealing her breast, which was bare down to her bosom and shining with diamonds, just like the first time I saw her. She turned her head slightly, like a flower on a stem, her bright blonde coiled upon her head, her bright blonde hair coiled upon her head in a Greek style. I had hoped that I would see her again, but was greatly surprised at the effect I allowed her to have on me, for I had promised myself that it would be different next time, especially because the Count had briefed me about her. And then there's a note here. It remains unclear why Harker puts any trust in Count's words now. That is a good point. Harker is a lot of trust in the Count. Um, for someone who just lunged at him and tore his shirt and grabbed him like and growled at him, um, Harker's, and who's ostensibly keeping him prisoner, Harker's putting a lot of trust with him. Um, even this whole grabbing the revolver thing, it's not exactly well written. It doesn't go into any narrative about Harker's thought process there. It simply says, I'm going to take you to show you some paintings. And then all of a sudden, Harker says he's scared and he's going to grab a, a revolver. He doesn't say, oh, I'm scared because this is the first time he's taking me upstairs to a private space. It, it, there's not a lot of narrative um, to some things that maybe should have a narrative. Yeah, anyhow, um... Nevertheless, everything happened the same way as before. I experienced the same sensations again, a kind of dull and de deadly dread, but as a sort of bittersweet pain. 
I tried to pull myself together to guard against the effects she had on me, and I more or less succeeded, but the moment she turned towards me and locked her uncomparable eyes with mine, it felt as though an electric current surged throughout my body. I grabbed a nearby chair and held on to its backrest. She looked steadily into my eyes, and it didn't even occur to me that I should have greeted her or that my behavior was doltish. But evidently neither did she see a need for salutations. It felt as though we had already known each other for a long time and therefore didn't need to explain ourselves. There's a note. In Dracula, there's a similar notion. The other was fair, as fair as she can be, with great wavy masses of golden hair and eyes like pale sapphires. I seemed somehow to know her face and to know it in connection with some dreamy fear, but I could not recollect at the moment how or where. It is speculated that this blonde girl reminds Harker of the Countess Dolagen von Gratz, appearing in Dracula's Guest, 1914, a story often seen as a deleted first chapter of Dracula or a study for the novel. Why did you never come up? she asked, with the same astonishing voice as last time. I've never heard such a voice before. I thought that you would come up and visit us. There's so much I would like to discuss with you. I tried to pardon myself and explain that I didn't know what she was referring to. That's right, she said, not taking her eyes off me. You will come. You will come. You are expected. Without shifting her gaze away from me, she smiled, almost imperceptibly. The blue glow in her eyes was so striking that it felt as though one of its rays had pierced right into my brain and I could feel it burn. Then I heard the Count's footsteps in the hallway. He's coming, she whispered. I must go, but remember. She got up, and for a moment she stood before me, bathed in candlelight. She was a sight more striking than any other I'd ever seen. She then proceeded to tiptoe past me so quietly that I hardly noticed. And without taking her eyes off of me, she put her white hand glittered with rings on top of mine and whispered, Tell him nothing, but come. And beware, beware, beware. Then she disappeared. But just as before, I didn't see what had become of her. I may, however, have heard a tiny spring click in one corner of the room where I had never seen a door before. With much effort, I tried to get a hold of myself again before the Count came in, and I somehow managed to do so, pretending to be absorbed in the map of England that was lying on the table in front of me. Come on, my dear friend, he said. Everything is ready upstairs. You must excuse us that everything is so primitive in this place. We do not have electric light here in the Carpathians. But you don't have any of the London fog here in the clean mountain air either, I said. Yes, those fog banks, he said with excitement. I've also, so yeah, why would he be excited about that, right? He can go hide in the fog with his victim. He'll be sneaky. I have also read about them in my books. I'm going to take a sip of my drink here. I think they only increase my longing for London. This fog, 
which turns any day into night and lies like a thick blanket over the streets and squares, all over more obscure than darkness itself. I want to see it. Oh yeah, that'd be tempting. More nighttime for him. I'm afraid that you would soon tire of it. Fog is the main drawback of London. It smothers the town like a vampire sucking the blood and bone marrow of its citizens, poisoning the blood and lungs of the children, resulting in countless diseases, not to mention all the pernicious crimes committed under its cloak, crimes that would otherwise be quite impossible to perpetrate. I really love how, like, literature in the 1800s was, like, so fucking heavy-handed. Like, yeah, we already fucking gathered that that was the insinuation that you'd commit crimes under the cloak of the fog. And and we already gathered there was some kind of, like, <laughs> metaphor for vampires and yada yada. It's just like, they're just like, we're going to really let you know what we're talking about. Um, and so then there's a note here. While in modern movies, the infamous Whitechapel murders mostly take place in gaslit alleys swirling with the fog, the actual Ripper killings were committed on clear nights in unlit streets. Typical for London by the turn of the 19th century was a mixture of smoke and fog. In July 1905, the word smog was coined at the Public Health Congress in London. Harker must mean this unhealthy combination of humid air, smoke, and sulfur dioxide. Normal mist also occurs in the mountains, as described in the following chapters. So yeah, that's, talking about, that's what they're talking about, the health hazards, diseases he mentioned in the air. Yes, the Count said, breathless with excitement, while fire seemed to spark in his eyes. Yes, these crimes, these horrible murders... Those slaughtered women found in sacks, drifting in the Thames, this blood that runs, runs, and flows, with no killer to be found. I don't think I wrongly accuse him when I say that he seemed to be licking his lips with lust when I mentioned the murders. Yes, it is a tragedy, he said, and these murders will never be solved, ever. Your writer, Conan Doyle, has written many good books about London, and I read your newspapers. According to them, barely two or three percent of all homicide cases are solved. Yes, London is indeed a remarkable city. <laughs> That's pretty good. I like that. Then perhaps, my good fellow, it would be best if you stayed in police custody once you are there, I thought to myself. Yeah, that's a fucking straight-up creepy-ass shit to say. All right, resuming with the same journal entry. Mm. Taking another sip. We walked down the hall, the Count leading the way with the light. Then we climbed the stone stairs and reached an iron-clad oak door. He opened it, and we entered the portrait gallery. When the Count closed the door again, I thought I saw something dart across the other end of the hall, a big, hairy animal of some kind. I was quite startled, and my host noticed. What is the matter? he asked. Have you suddenly taken ill? I did tell you that the air in these old rooms would be harmful. No, 
There is nothing wrong with me. But what is there at the far end of the gallery? There is nothing. Or did you mean the large painting? Now I saw nothing either, but I somewhat sheepishly told him what I believed to have seen. He laughed at me and said, I will not say it is just your imagination, dear Harker. No, that I will not say, because you claim it with such conviction. But if you did indeed see something, it must have been a rat. There are plenty of them in these old houses. No, I dare say what I saw was the size of a... A cat, he said. Many parts of the castle are barely more than ruins, and the cats have multiplied. It is their instinct to hunt rats and mice. Natural laws are the same everywhere. The stronger and smarter creatures live off the weak and dumb. Oh, shit. Oh, shit. What's Dracula insinuating there? The gallery was unusually large. At the far end hung a port large portrait, which at first seemed to turn the page portray the unknown lady whom I had now seen twice in the library. So if we recall, like Dracula was saying something to the effect of um, she seems to dress and have an affectation to dress like her great-grandmother or something like that. So Dracula was trying to explain why she looks so antiquated and explain that she's a relation of this person. That's probably why she looks like this painting. But we know better. It looks so much like her that it was impossible to distinguish the same eyes and look, the same countenance in all respects, the same hairstyle and the same clothes. The likeness was ex executed life-size by one of the masters of the beginning of this century. The woman was reclining on a chair or some kind of divan with flowery shrubs and trees behind her. The artist arrangement, although rather pretentious, had same had some effect. He had also allowed himself to make some changes to her garments, which the ladies of those times would no doubt have considered proper, although they probably would have fainted if they were to see the bicycle garments worn by women today. Ooh, bicycle garments, I do declare. At first glance, the picture surprised me greatly. She looked like an exact replica of the noble girl I had seen here in the house, but I soon collected my thoughts and recalled what the Count had told me. I knew that this was not her and the portrait, but some female ancestor of hers. This had to be the reason why they appeared so much alike, especially as the portrait was full scale. When I took a closer look, I saw that the lady in the portrait wore on her chest the same diamond jewelry with a ruby in the center. She also had a belt around her middle, displaying a brooch with dragon jewels. And so then there's a note here. Um, Although I could find no other mentioning of dragon jewels in Icelandic literature, dragons played an important role in Icelandic myths and were also depicted on jewelry. So maybe saying that uh, Bram Stoker never called them dragon jewels. I gazed at the portrait entranced, while the Count watched me with eager curiosity. <laughs> My friend, he said, you do not have to be embarrassed. You are not the first person she has confused, and you will probably not be the last. But look at her now. 
watch closely, he continued, raising the candelabra that, although it was very heavy, appeared weightless in his hand, as if it were just a wax candle. These breasts, which poets would compare to alabaster, your language has no words to express it. Your poor, bloodless people, neither snow nor alabaster, and that skin, firm and soft as down feathers to the touch, and that unrivaled physique. I looked at him and saw that his mask had now fallen. In that moment, I realized that he was an old libertine. And these lips, he said, pursing his own a little, as if he were swallowing up the painting. Then he shared more pictures with me, such as a portrait of a naked woman being sold by a slave trader. What? Displayed at the last show. All right, there's a note here. I'm going to need a note for that one. The Icelandic text allows two interpretations. Either the picture was seen at the latest art show or the woman in the picture is being offered as the latest slave trade show. In Britain, however, slavery was already counteracted by the habeas corpus clause in the Magna Carta in 1215. It seems very improbable that Harker ever saw a slave market. A few pages later, we will learn that he knows savages only from pictures. The topic of a nude female slave being presented by a slave trader was popular with 19th century painters such as Jean-Louis Jerome, Ernest Norman, John William Waterhouse, and Geza Udarvi. Okay. Um, the Count introduced each painting with a very indecent description. You were not saying anything, he said. No, Sir Count, you are so well-spoken, I have nothing to add. It is the cold blood in you, Englishmen. You do not know the power of love and beauty. And still, I have read that English women are among the most enchanting in the world. There are quite a lot of handsome girls there, yes, I said. Like her, up there? Um, I answered truthfully that I'd never seen anyone like her, but also that I was generally unfamiliar with women and that I only knew the fine ladies pictured in magazines and newspapers, some of which were thought to outshine others when it comes to beauty. I have seen these illustrations. They are captivating, he said. I have had some of them sent to me for my own enjoyment. <laughs> sent to me. Uh, excuse me, can you uh, send me some uh, pictures of fine young ladies? But a picture is just a picture, not the same as flesh and blood. Whose portrait is this, then? I asked. A cousin of mine, he said. The family blood was pure in her veins, as her mother was also of our clan. It has been a custom in our family that the men do not marry outside of the clan, as it has usually ended badly when they do. The women have been short-lived, and the children rarely reach adulthood. Uh, I was horrified. It was as if there was something in the triumphant in his voice. So he just said that we're all inbred. Um, and that if you marry outside of your family, that's when the children die. Okay. You know. That whole Dracula lore, the whole inbreeding lore. 
guess we're still on the same same entry here. But some of our daughters, he said, have married outside of the family as they have not been able to find a match amongst their relatives. Because our daughters have always been the most beautiful women, distant kin from the noblest clans in Europe have joined our family, although they hardly possess the same rank as ours. She up there, he arched his head towards the large portrait. Even from childhood, she was one of those women who held the hearts of men at at their fingertips, playing with them as a child plays with grapes before sucking out the liquid. Ooh, that's an image. He slipped his arms through mine and began leading me back around the gallery, saying, She married a young Austrian man, a nobleman. The name does not matter, but you can look it up in many books if you want, as she made it famous. She understood that each gift of nature bestowed upon man its fullest extent is the gift of power. Artistry, prowess, wisdom, and beauty. All of that is power. It is passed on from one generation to the next, my good friend. Nature is always working. It is constantly trying to produce something more refined, squandering much material, selecting and rejecting. That is That which is inferior contributes its part, and then it is discarded like trash. He waved his hand as if he were throwing something away, and his face turned cruel. There was not the slightest trace of human feeling in it. But then, he said, perhaps once or twice, in a generation, the hard work pays off and the family flourishes. The truly elite among them rise to the top. Although the Count has a remarkable number of English words at the ready, he had a hard time coming up with these last ones. He always tends to be at a loss for words when enthusiasm seizes him. She up there, he said, she had the power. And that is why she had the right to rule. She was blessed with everything. Beauty, as you can see, intellect and eloquence, nobility and willpower and strength. She held the destinies of a whole nations in her hand, though few suspected it. Heads of state, kings and emperors lay at her feet or in her arms. She knew very well that such a woman possessing all of these qualities could not be bought for all the gold in the world, and thus she could make everyone her slave, the most humble slaves whom she could wrap around her finger because they imagined that they possessed her, when in fact she was the one holding the reins in her beautiful hands. Everyone danced like a puppet beneath her fingers. She knew how to rule and she knew that such is the supreme goal of life. She became a widow early, he said. Her husband withered up. The poor devil had been sick since childhood, although he was from a noble line. He laughed contemptuously. It was said that she cared for him. He was a good-looking lad. His portrait is there. But the love of our women is like a consuming flame, and he, he melted from it like a wax candle thrown into a blazing bonfire. We of the genius Dracula, a primary line of the Sleskers, 
sparklers. I can I can read. It says here that the historical Dracula dynasty ruled over Latia with Stoker's vampires count lived in the northeast corner of Transylvania. The mountaintop on which I contend Stoker imagined his castle Dracula to be located, Mount Isvolor C. Liman Louis, actually belonged to a district with 63% share of Sleskler's Zeckler's S. Z-E-K-L-E-R-S in the population versus 2% in the district district region. All right. Cool. Um, so with this last minute switch, Stoker may have tried to resolve the Wallachian ancestry of his Dracula race. So basically, I guess what they're trying to explain here is that he lived in a region where there wasn't um, many Wallachians and like why would he be there and Bram Stoker's kind of scrambling to be like there's these kind of people and these kind of people and I don't know he was one of one of these whatever we believe that our kin descends from the ancient Huns who once swept over across Europe like wildfire destroying nations and their people as the story goes, the Huns were descendants of the Scythian witches who had been banished to the woods where they commingled with the demons. Dang. Okay, well, that explains a lot. These tales, of course, are like any other of the sort, but it is known that no demon or wizard has ever been greater or more powerful than Attila, our ancestor. A note here, the lines in Dracula mentioning the battles of Dracula dynasty with the Turks are omitted in the mocked Mercana, eliminating possible associations with historical persons, that is, the anti-Turkish campaigners with the Dracula clan. Therefore, it is not surprising that we, his descendants, hate and love more passionately than other mortals. But I have now come a long way from our story. She became a widow, but as you might guess, such a trivial incident did not matter to such a woman. No historian has ever suspected how much power she held, and that is why some things will never be fully explained. The few who know, I could mention names, but it is not necessary, can prove that there was hardly a political event at that time in which she did not have her pretty finger in the pie. In fact, for most of these occurrences, some sort of planning can be traced right back to her bedchamber, for there was a queen, and it is from there that she reigned in secret. Oh, for there she was a queen. And it says here, this is another possible allusion to Josephine de Buharnius, who was said to rule the world from her bedroom. And that was the note earlier when they talked about um, her immodest dress and who would have worn something like that, but Josephine. What a grand life. No law but love and free will. What a hippie she was. This picture was painted in Paris two years before Napoleon was crowned. It was a few years later that she met a man in Vienna 
who, like her, was of the Dracula family. He was younger than her in years, but women like her never age. She was more beautiful than ever, and he was like un- any, unlike anyone she had ever fallen for, a man cut from the same wood as her. Um, it says here, the only other male member of Dracula's family mentioned so far who would qualify as Harker's host himself, the first cousin of the lady in the portrait. This would explain his surprisingly intimate knowledge of the story that is about to be told. Oh, shit. It was as if the two fires had met. Oh, you could rational children of the West. You do not know this kind of love. A love as biting as the bitterest hatred, with kisses that burn like glowing iron and embraces. (sighs) But no more of that. She married him and moved here with him to the ancient family estate, which was, of course, not as decrepit as it is today. And here they lived together as one fire, both created to rule. If these old walls could talk, they would tell many stories that your cool English virtue could never dream of. Although even I can appreciate that virtue, as it is also a form of power. Yet we, Attila's children, have a natural, truly different, a nature truly different from yours. Oh, you're going to hate the ending of this story. I have read about eternal love from your English books, but perhaps I will come to understand its meaning when I arrive in London, as I do not yet fully know what it means, or rather, I do not understand the meaning you attach to it. Love has its lifespan, like the flower in the field. Once in full bloom, it quickly withers away. Then spring returns, but not the same flower, nor one of the same root. This is a law of nature. Once passion has blazed at its peak, it is more likely to be extinguished. This love of theirs eventually burned out, as love usually does, or hers at least she was one of those women he lowered his voice to a mysterious whisper I will tell you my friend she was one of those women whose life is too rich to have just one man yes such creatures do exist but no more of that she got herself a lover a pretty boy from the mountains here, a country bumpkin, as you would call him, although we Zesklers are all aristocrats. For her, it was no disgrace, and her husband should have understood that and let her live her life the way she needed to, but he did not, and that was a major mistake on his part. She was his dutiful wife, nevertheless, and she managed the castle's household as was expected of a noble lady. Simply put, as his spouse, she paid him proper respect and performed her duties to him. Her personal affairs were none of his business. None of his business, I blurted out, unintended. Certainly not, dear friend. Love is free. It is detached from all other commitments and circumstances. In our clan, this has always been the applicable law. His refusal to accept this, as I said, 
was a great and punishable mistake. Perhaps the fire of love had not yet begin, been extinguished in him as it had been in her. It could be that within him there still survived a few glowing embers, which would explain his actions, but not excuse them, for he certainly did not act in the honorary way of a nobleman. Instead, he acted like a lowery, lowly commoner. He belittled himself by spying on her and her lover. One evening, he burst in on them and, without even realizing how ridiculous it was, began to play the role of the betrayed husband, which was far beneath his dignity. He then let himself have his revenge. And how do you think he accomplished this, my dear friend? Plain and simple and undeniably funny as it was, he had the door to the countess's chamber nailed shut, letting them stay in there by themselves. But it was not his intention that they should starve to death, for they lacked neither food nor drink. It is said that she saw to that himself. Mm, it is said that he saw to that himself. All the servants were dismissed, except for the most loyal and reliable one. The castle, then, was as quiet as a dead man's grave. Can you imagine, with your mind's eye, the lovers lingering, living there in that room? In the beginning, I would imagine, they lived as if they were in paradise. She was too proud to know the meaning of fear, and he, the poor boy, must have considered himself richer than a king, having her all to himself. The Count, however, knew very well how he would have his requital. Knowing the Countess and the devouring flame of her emotions, he sensed that her lover, being one of life's wax candles, would melt at such heat as her first husband had done. Some people die, others go mad. Poor, useless devils. And so the Count just bided his time. It took several months until one evening, when the moon was waxing, the window of the locked room, the little tower room in the southeast, was opened. It was said that the terrible sound of an insane anguished cries could be heard. Help me! Help me! Help me! She is killing me! The next moment it seemed as if someone had stepped into the window sill and plunged out, head first. All right. Have you not seen the abyss out there? You can see it outside your window, but here, at the top of the tower, the drop is several hundred feet. When he was found there, there among the cliffs, there was not much left for him for her soft arms to embrace. Okay, let's read a couple of these notes before we close out the podcast episode. Um, let's see here. It's saying here that uh, another reference to Josephine de Bar-Arnius, um, that she also had many affairs before and after she married Napoleon Bonaparte. Um, it's also said here that the disdain with which Harker's host 
describes his first cousin's second husband here cast doubts on our suspicion that both counts might be the same person. And that disdain that they're referring to um, says that the sentence that the spying that he did was far beneath his dignity. I don't know. I don't think that it makes me cast doubts that it was the same person. Hmm. Well, dear readers, I'm going to do... We're closing out the hour here. I'm going to have some reflection on that. Do a little research on jogging my memory. The differences between this and Bram Stoker's version. I really don't recall most of that from Bram Stoker's version, honestly. So I'm going to be curious to see what I can find out. Um, And then we will see you next episode. Good night.